The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one- or two-year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. Cokie Roberts was a colleague, a friend, and a respected journalist and author. I've known her personally since she began covering Capitol Hill for National Public Radio in 1978. Cokie passed away this week at the age of 75 from complications involving breast cancer. I will miss her as I think virtually everybody who cares about civility and decency in Washington will miss Cokie. She was born Mary Martha Corinne Morrison Claiborne Boggs. Even by New Orleans standards, that is quite a name. She was born back on December 27, 1943. With all those names, she got the name Cokie from her older brother because he couldn't pronounce Corinne, and he dubbed her Cokie, and it stuck. 
Her parents were members of Congress. Hale Boggs was the Democratic whip tragically lost in an airplane crash in Alaska. He was succeeded in Congress by Lindy Boggs, his wife. Cokie is survived by her husband of 53 years, journalist, author, and professor Steve Roberts, her children, Lee Roberts and Rebecca Roberts, and her six grandchildren. Cokie was first and foremost a wife, mother, sister, daughter, aunt, cousin, and friend. And then she was a great career news person who really helped shape much of modern journalism. In her career, she's been referred to as a founding mother for paving the way for women journalists across the industry. On this episode of Newt's World, we are re-airing the episode we recorded with Koki for Mother's Day about her book, Founding Mothers. This episode of Newt's World. For Mother's Day, I invited Cokie Roberts to join me to talk about her wonderful book, Founding Mothers, The Women Who Raised Our Nation. Cokie and I have known each other for many years. We first met when I came to Congress and Cokie covered me for NPR. That was 41 years ago. In her more than 40 years in broadcasting, she's won countless awards, including three Emmys. She has also been inducted into the Broadcasting and Cable Hall of Fame. She is currently a commentator for Morning Edition on NPR and a contributor to ABC News. We both share a passion for the history of the founding of our nation and a passion for this process of democratic self-government. I'm really pleased to welcome her as my guest. Cokie, it's it's wonderful to still be friends after four decades. One of the things that binds us that most people don't know about is that not only is my wife, Callista, an ambassador to the Vatican, but your mother was probably the most beloved ambassador that the U.S. has sent. When we talk to people about her, it's just amazing the response to Lindy Boggs' name, the fact that she came over. I think she was 80 when she came over. She broke her leg and went to every reception anyway. And I think the Pope may have been the same age, and she and John Paul just got together so beautifully that literally today we'll go places and people will reminisce. So I'm curious, as the daughter, what was it? I I know what it's like as the husband, but as the daughter, what was it like to go and visit Mom at the Vatican? First of all, it's, it's a treat to be talking to you, Newt. And it was... Terrific. It was wonderful. First of all, I love Rome. But secondly, I uh, loved watching her operate. Uh, You know, people feel that political appointments are not um, as somehow worthy as uh, foreign service appointments to ambassadorial posts. And and I'm sure there's some places where that might be the case and some people where that might be the case. But it really made a difference to have a politician there with my mother. She was the first woman to be an ambassador to the Vatican. And she was, as you well know, such a savvy politician and such a charming person that she basically just had them all 
ready to do pretty much anything she wanted. And it was an important time because there were some things coming out of the Vatican that were not going to work well for American education. And the fact that she was there and was able to explain things like federal funding for higher education made a big difference. But she also as you have learned from others who you've talked to, she just charmed them. They loved being around her as as anybody would. You know, it's interesting because as a Tulane graduate, I came to realize that New Orleans teaches a certain style and a certain approach that's so very human. And your mom sort of personified that kind of tradition. Literally today, even today, people still speak as though it was only yesterday morning that she was there. That's nice to hear. That's very nice to hear. She loved people and she loved the church. And the fact that she was able to have that uh, wonderful appointment uh, in her 80s where she could have a capstone to a career in public service serving both her country and her church uh, was something that was very, very special. So let me move on to other mothers, although your mother certainly was a remarkable and a good example of being a patriot Uh, and a parent simultaneously. But you wrote this remarkable book, Founding Mothers, which I thought was a very clever insight on your part after all of the Founding Fathers stuff. I'm curious, when did it strike you that there's a really very interesting book here and that you ought to tackle it? Well, you know, in a way, it really does go back to my mother because when I was growing up in Washington, my father was in Congress, and this was the 1950s, and I saw the tremendous influence of the congressional wives. Uh, this this was people like Betty Ford and Lady Bird Johnson and Pauline Gore. They were very, very involved in politics and very involved in the life of the community. It was before home rule in Washington, so they worked with the African-American women here to run all the social service agencies, and they ran campaigns and voter registration drives and the conventions and their husbands' offices, and of course they ran us kids. And so I knew how incredibly influential they were. And of course, as somebody who's covered Congress and politics as long as I have, I got to be, as as you are, on a first-name basis with the Founding Fathers because you go back to them all the time as references, you know, and as you well know, they are referred to usually incorrectly. You need to see what they actually did say about religion in the public square or the right to bear arms or why somebody has to be born in America to be president and all those things. And As I got to know that period better and better, I got very curious about the women of the era, figuring they had to be at least as influential as the women of my era. And I went back to read about them and found I couldn't. With the exception of a couple of good biographies of Abigail Adams, there really wasn't anything there. Now, in the years since Founding Mothers came out, which was 2004, There have been some good biographies of Dolly Madison and Martha Washington, but that was not true at the time and still uh, pathetically sparse when it comes to a lot of the other women. So it really started me on a career, a whole new career in my life of writing history, and I followed Founding Mothers with Ladies of Liberty about the early republic and then Capital Dames about the Civil War. So, And now I'm writing the suffrage book. So these are important times in our history where women were making 
a huge contribution and have been unheralded and unknown. And I just feel like you can't write an accurate history if you leave out half of the human race. When did it hit you that you had found an entire second career? I think it's interesting for people to realize that, you know, life often occurs from angles you didn't quite expect. And so I'm curious from your standpoint, when did you suddenly realize, gosh, this is so interesting and it's so so useful that I'm going to keep being a historian? I know that's that's a very interesting question. And I, I can't pinpoint it, of course, because, again, it's something that you've done. The fact is, is that people start accepting you into kind of the world of history, and it gets more and more interesting as you learn more and more about it. At one point, before I'd ever even written a book, a history book, I said to my husband, I said, you know what I'd really like to do is just sit and read history. And he said, well, nobody's going to pay you to do that. And that's true. You actually have to write it after you read it to get paid. But it is something that I've enjoyed all of my life. But to really make it a second career really came about a little bit slowly. And at first, sort of professional historians were skeptical of this mere journalist stepping into their turf. But then as they saw that I really was serious and that the research was very solid research, I became more and more part of that community, and I've enjoyed it enormously. You're a terrific on-air talent, and your ability both on radio and on television has been remarkable. But I'm curious, as you point out, and I'm like you in the sense I love reading, but then eventually you have to turn and you have to write. How did you find the writing process? Well, I was very lucky because I was raised by nuns. And the nuns who taught me the religious of the Sacred Heart were just insistent that you write and write and write. And so I, I've i always written. I've always been a good writer. So I wasn't afraid of writing. But, of course, uh, again, as you know, it's, it's hard work. Um, you know, it requires a great deal of discipline. It, it's lonely. And you just have to keep doing it until it's done. It's like a paper versus an exam. That is not easy. But it's incredibly satisfying once it's done. That's sort of my experience. That you, you look back and you think, wow, that actually worked out. So you start out and you do all this research. I'm curious, before we get into individual women, what was the biggest surprise when you were writing uh, this first book on founding mothers? What's the thing where you suddenly said, wow, I really hadn't thought of that, or I, I really, it makes me think differently? I was surprised at how deeply political they were. You know, I knew about Abigail Adams writing to John Adams, and of course her famous Remember the Ladies, but I really didn't realize how they were all engaged in politics. And they were such patriots. Here they were, suffering all of the hardships of the revolution. And the pre-revolution, their husbands went off to the Continental Congress. Nobody was paying them. Many of them were in danger, and they still really believed in this cause. And, you know, just getting through the day in the 18th century was hard. Uh, you know, you'd have these women, you think about it, they'd sometimes lose two children in a week. It was horrible. But then they would still sit up at night and write letters about what seemed important to them about the new nation that they wanted to see formed. It's just remarkable how dedicated they were and how knowledgeable they were. And that really was a big surprise. When you were going through this, 
and you write about it, you know, several really fascinating people. Did one of them sort of catch your heart? Is there one that you you found, gee, I really like her. I'd really, if you had a choice, if you had a chance to go to dinner, she'd be the one you'd like to go hang out with. Well, I think Sally Livingston Jay would be the person you'd like to have dinner with. She was the wife of John Jay, who eventually became our first Chief Justice. But she was off with him in Spain and France. And her family, the Livingstons, were deeply political. And her father, who was the first patriot uh, governor of New Jersey, had this bunch of girls. And he was very, he just, he didn't seem to have any sense that girls couldn't do what boys could do. And so he he gave them all responsible jobs and and, uh, treated them as serious people. So she wrote these fabulous letters back from her journeys that were very, very funny. So you get a sense of her as as somebody you really like to spend time with. And apparently, she was also a great hostess. So she would be the person you'd want to have dinner with. But then there are others that you'd kind of like to interview, Newt. You know, (laughs) Mercy Otis Warren, who was probably too serious for, for my taste, but she was an interesting philosopher and a very important propagandist for the Patriot cause. I'd like to do a TV interview with her, but I probably would prefer not to have dinner with her. <laughs> That's great. You know, I've written a number of books about Washington, and we did a documentary called The First American about him. And I'm really always struck with how central Martha was to his sense of well-being how important it was that she would come to Valley Forge, how much she was in a sense that even when she was back at Mount Vernon and he was in the field, there was still a sense of intimacy, which we can't fully capture because she burned all of their personal letters. I know. I could kill her all over again for doing that. But the Ladies Association of Mount Vernon has put peace together a lot of her life, uh, particularly from other people. She didn't just go to Valley Forge. She went to camp every single winter of the eight long years of the Revolutionary War. And she went because Washington thought that his wife was essential to troop morale. There were periods when the troops were unpaid, unclothed, unsheltered, threatening desertion by regiment. And she would arrive at camp, and they would cheer her in, Lady Washington is here. And she would bring foodstuffs and cloth that had been made at Mount Vernon over the summer, uh, one of the many contributions of African Americans to the Revolution. And she and the other officers' wives would cook for the soldiers and sew for the soldiers and pray with the soldiers and nurse the soldiers and put on great entertainments for them and just keep them happy, keep them in camp. And the letters about their affection for her are just remarkable. And then after the war, when she became the first First Lady and and had a, a very difficult role to try to forge, veterans would come and visit with her because they had all gotten to know her during the war. And in that very first Congress, she lobbied for veterans' benefits for Revolutionary War veterans because she had been at camp with them. It's remarkable in that sense. I always try to remind people when they complain about the challenges of modern politics that Washington spent all but two weeks of an eight-year period in the field. And in a sense, her coming to him and being with him, I think 
made it possible for him to sustain his own morale, not just the morale of the troops. I think that's absolutely right. It was a good thing she was on hand because he could be flirty. There was one dance where he danced for three hours straight with the very flirtatious and pretty Catherine Littlefield Green, the wife of Nathaniel Green. So it's a good thing Martha was on hand. (laughs) Because we see the older Washington as president. We don't realize uh, how energetic and how good-looking and how capable he was. He was a hunk. He was totally... And the fact of his good looks and his presence made a huge difference in his leadership. It really made people sort of sit up and pay attention to him. And he was well aware of that. You also remember that that, uh, he almost quits after the first term because the news media is attacking Martha for having high tea. And I think it's a sense of his, his sensitivity to her that he was just infuriated that anybody, after everything she had done for the cause of freedom, that anybody would criticize her. Well, and of course, again, you know, people think that this partisanship we're living through is something recent. Of course, it had already started by then. And the only thing that Hamilton and Madison could agree on is that Washington should run for a second term. And he really didn't want to do it. The election was in December, and in November, he had tea with Eliza Powell, a woman who was very influential in federalist politics in Philadelphia, and she was a good friend of his, and he said he wasn't going to run again. She wrote him a letter basically saying, you have to run again. And she called on a sense of patriotism and a sense of history and a sense of duty. But then she did refer to his looks, basically saying, your mere presence is calculated to inspire confidence in the American people. And, of course, by appealing to his pride, it worked, and he ran again, and the country survived. At Mount Vernon, where they have, uh, I think, a pretty amazing museum presenting their lives, I had never realized that, that when they were younger, she was really quite attractive. And she's, we have this image of her in her grandmotherly phase. But when she was first married to Washington, in many ways, she matched him in being an attractive person. Not to mention that she was the richest woman in Virginia. That helped. I mean, she she had inherited from her first husband. Some of the letters of hers, by the way, that we do have were between her husbands after Daniel Park Custis died and before she married Washington. And she was running the business, and they are letters to vendors in England uh, that she was dealing with. She was on top of it. And there's some evidence that she was really very hesitant to remarry because, of course, a married woman could not own property. A widow could, but a married woman couldn't. She was hesitant to give up that right. But then George swept her off her feet. (laughs) He was very clever. Not, Not only was she attractive and wealthy, but she was competent. I mean, in many ways, Mount Vernon survives for eight years without him because of her. Right. And then when the Washington family inherited it, they ran it into the ground. It took that remarkable group of women in the middle of the 19th century to purchase it and make it survive. You know, in that sense, we just do a diversion for a minute. The Mount Vernon Women's Association is really remarkable because at a time when you didn't think of women playing that leading a role, they saw Mount Vernon collapsing and decaying. They got organized. They did fundraising and literally saved the entire farm and the mansion from uh, collapse. And during the Civil War, it was really touch and go. 
And they, in fact, the only money from the federal government that Mount Vernon has ever received was a slight compensation for soldiers being camped there during the Civil War. But that group of women was incredible. And, in fact, I have an interesting letter from Abigail Brooks Adams, who was Charles Francis Adams' wife, of course, the grandson of the original John Adams, saying, those women have a huge problem raising all of that money, but I'll do what I can. I found them to be remarkably organized and disciplined about getting things done. And and the research is first rate. Yeah, I, I would say to anybody who's listening to this conversation, if you get a chance to come to Washington, you should go to Mount Vernon, and you'll be amazed how much you learn uh, and how different your feelings are after you've been there. Absolutely. And they've also done a very good job of highlighting the lives of the people who were enslaved there and the contributions they made and their craftsmanship. It's a much fuller story. When we come back, we'll talk about the founding mother who was prolific in her letter writing, mostly to her husband, advising him on what to do. I think the woman who gets the most attention because of the quality of her letters is Abigail Adams. Took herself seriously, and obviously John Adams took her seriously too. But she's really a remarkable shift from Martha Washington in style. I sort of wonder sometimes how they must have gotten along or not gotten along. It's kind of a classic South-North thing, isn't it? You know, Martha graciously on the plantation, entertaining endlessly. Abigail frugally in New England trying to keep body and soul together. She, uh, I mean, what she did in addition to her smarts, uh, uh, political and philosophical smarts, the way she managed to support that family is just incredible. I mean, you go to their first house, and it's the size of most people's living rooms today. And she had four little kids there, and she had soldiers coming and staying from time to time. And she had a husband who was never home, and she managed to keep it all together while keeping it all together to think great thoughts about what the future of the country should be. She said at one point to John, you know we women are really better patriots than you are because here we are suffering all the hardships of this war and making all the sacrifices. And if we win, you men are going to be held in high regard and hold high office, and we won't even be able to vote. So we're better patriots than you are. And I must say he agreed. What strikes me about her is both her assertiveness and her clarity, that this is a person who Mm -hmm. is confident in her right to be direct and who thought deeply and seriously about what she was going to be direct about. But these are serious letters. Absolutely. And, of course, we're so blessed because there are thousands of them. He was gone so much. She wrote to him in Philadelphia. She wrote to him in Paris. She wrote to him in Holland. She wrote to him all the time and then finally, finally joined him. There were long stretches there. And he really relied on her. When he became president, she was back at the farm trying to get everything settled before she came to Philadelphia, and his mother was dying, 
And, you know, she was very businesslike about all of this. And he kept writing her letter after letter saying, you've got to come. I must have you. I can't do this without you. And stop worrying about my mother. Worry about me. He does say that at one point. He was totally reliant on her. Now, I tell you, I think that when she became First Lady, that she fell entrapped in the way that so many people in the White House do. Not that she was in the White House till the very end, but in the executive mansion do, which is that they become so isolated and so convinced that they are inside doing the true, the right, the just, and everybody outside is out to get them, that she became less useful politically because she was so offended by the controversy and the opposition and all of that. And so she became a huge supporter of the Alien and Sedition Acts, and that was a death blow to John Adams. Well, I'm curious, were there any of the letters that you found particularly moving or that you really thought, this is something for the ages? Well, there are lots that are for the ages because she is so smart and she sometimes is so direct, as you say. She, At one point, again, before the war, she went to church and the preacher was counseling that they get along better with England, you know, reconciliation. And she was furious. You know, we're not reconciling with those people. And the letter is very direct and funny. But you know the most touching one, actually, that I found was from John Adams when Abigail lost a baby. And the baby was full term, and she was very frightened that she was going to die. And he was in Baltimore, where Congress had gone to escape the British. Letters take a while, so he writes to her at one point and says, you must have had the baby by now. I'm so eager to know about this new life, and then uh, and then he learns that the baby had died, and he is just heartbroken, and his letter is so affecting about how he feels so undone by this life he never met. It really gives you goosebumps. Which is really a kind of John Adams you don't normally think of. Exactly. He's usually so gruff and sort of clueless about how to deal with people. And in this case, he's just a sad daddy. Now, there's a dramatic difference between Abigail and Dolly Madison. With Abigail, you get this really intellectual who's thinking about all this. And with Dolly Madison, the the great moment is an action moment when she saves Washington's painting when the British are burning the White House. And it's just a kind of fascinating difference in the personalities. Well, I can make a case, though, that Dolly Madison kept this country together in a way that was absolutely necessary throughout the early republic as the partisanship was getting rifer and rifer, and, of course, the sectionalism. She was the person who made the Congress come together, and it started when she was the wife of Secretary of State. You know, Jefferson was such an odd creature, and she's the person who entertained, and she had these events at their house on F Street, and then when they were in the White House, she did it as well. Sixteen years of Dolly Madison as the premier hostess in Washington, where she made everybody come together, drink some wine together, have some punch, and behave. And it's where all of the deals were made. It's where all the information was exchanged. 
And at one point, the Federalists thought that they could boycott her squeezes, as they were called. And then they discovered they didn't know anything if they did that. So they had to relent and go back because that was where business got done. But she was brilliant about it. And at one point, Henry Clay said to her, everybody loves Mrs. Madison. She said, well, that's because Mrs. Madison loves everybody. Now, I've read her mail. That's not true. But that was the way she came across. And when she left, when the Madison presidency was over, the newspapers, including the Federalist newspapers, just wrote these pans of praise to her, you know, these over-the-top tributes to her glory having come into the city and shone upon it and then it disappearing. She had her few years back at Montpelier, but then she came back to Washington for much of her old age and remained very much a presence. She had a seat in the House of Representatives. She was always consulted by presidents and first ladies, always visited by visiting heads of state. She was really first lady for close to half a century. You mentioned how strange Jefferson was. He's kind of an odd duck. He is very much so. My mother always said he was a spoiled brat, and that's probably true. But he is. I mean, he was so smart. He thought great thoughts all the time, but he was just such a bag of contradictions. I mean, he knew slavery was wrong, and yet he couldn't get away from it. He was so odd about religion. And with women, he had good relationships with women, but always talked about how he didn't think women should be involved in anything political and that they had ruined France, all of that. But then he would have these long political exchanges with women. So he was quite complicated. When he was in the White House, he would have Federalists to dinner one night and Republicans to dinner another night so that he could say different things to different people. But, you know, the Sally Hemings scandal broke. People don't realize this. In 1802, it was in the papers in, you know, the second year of his presidency. So he kept begging his daughters to come to Washington to basically serve as cover. And they would come from time to time. His younger daughter, Maria, died in childbirth while he was president. But his older daughter, Martha, came and had the first baby in the White House, James Madison Randolph. And he was always after them to come and be with him, even as he would write letters saying women shouldn't be involved in these things. He was a complicated person. Yeah, that, I think that sort of captures it, but it was just the degree to which that complexity and that sort of intellectual aloofness created a vacuum that Dolly Madison could fill, and then her willingness to do that. If we had one or two uh, dining rooms in this city today that were explicitly bipartisan, the city would probably be a lot healthier place. Absolutely. Absolutely would be. And, you know, when I was growing up, that was very much the case. But, you know, we live in different times. Bess Truman became president after Eleanor Roosevelt. She said that she was coming into the hardest job since Elizabeth Monroe came in after Dolly Madison. So it was coming in after a very vibrant person. When we come back, not all founding mothers are alike. Next, we'll reveal the mother who was one of the most influential and unique voices of her time.
you then go from the sort of wives of extraordinary famous founding fathers to Mercy Otis Warren, who really carves out her own space in a way that for that generation is pretty unique. Absolutely. She grew up in a family where, again, she was treated as an equal until her brothers went to Harvard. Of course, she couldn't do that. But she wrote plays and poems that were published in newspapers around the colonies that were very influential in rousing opinion against the British. She was as influential in some quarters as Tom Paine with Common Sense. She also had the ears of many of the founders. And so when the British were in Boston and wreaking havoc, her letters to the Continental Congress made a big difference in terms of bringing people together in their willingness to fight the British. Because, of course, the British were not fighting in the South at that point. It took some convincing, and her letters were influential in doing that. And then she became very suspicious of the Constitution and all of that because she didn't really believe in a strong federal government. But she came around eventually and then wrote this remarkable history of the American Revolution. And one of the things that's impressive in that is that, and this is another reason why writing about the women is so important, she talks about things that happened during the war that the men just never talk about. Rape as an instrument of war, starvation, all of the things. It's not just the battlefield that she's talking about. She's talking about the effects on all of American society. And, you know, when you think about the Bill of Rights and quartering troops, can you imagine the offenses that those troops could have committed when they were quartered in people's homes? I mean, it's really a shocking thought. She was there talking about it when nobody else was. And that's another thing, actually, about writing these books. The women's letters are so really delightful because they're not writing thinking that their letters are going to be published as the men were. They're not editing and redrafting and all of that. They're just writing letters, not expecting you know me to read their mail 200 years later. Yes, they're full of politics, but they're also full of the economic situation and who's having children and all too often losing them and what the fashions are and all of that. So you get a much, much broader sense of American society. And you also get somewhat more clear-eyed view of the men. So... In that context, was Mercy Otis Warren unique, or were there a group of women who actually were public advocates and wrote for the public? She was unusual. There were some others. Annis Boudinot Stockton, whose husband Richard Stockton was one of the signers of the Declaration and then recanted at some point, but she was still around and became a great friend of Washington. Her poems were published in the newspapers of the time. Uh, and actually, Washington wrote to her when the war was over and said, basically, now it's kind of up to you women to keep this country going, make it work. A lot of women were not published under their own names. So Judith Sargent Murray, for instance, was published as the gleaner for a while, but then she wanted people to know it was she who was writing. And she wrote in, you know, a, an essay that was widely published in 1797 on the equality of the sexes. So, you know, there were women out there arguing for equal rights even in the 18th century. So 
jumping from literary advocacy to sort of direct action, Deborah Sampson does something which actually happens a fair number of times in the Civil War, but I think was a little more unusual in the Revolutionary War. She becomes a man in order to fight. Right. She went to war. There probably, I'm sure there were people in all of our wars who did that, but she she was Robert Shirtleaf, and she fought, and she was injured several times, and finally she got sick. She They called it camp fever, and a doctor came to tend to her and found out her secret, and so she was discharged. And But she did receive a pension, as did her husband, received a survivor's pension. She was very much considered a soldier. And then there were others who took over from their husbands on the battlefield. Margaret Corbin, who at the Battle of Fort Washington, when her husband was shot, took his gun, and she's actually buried at West Point. There were several women who actually fought, and then lots of women went along with the men to battle, the camp followers, mainly the wives of the men, because what else were they going to do? They didn't have any wherewithal to make a living, and so they went with the soldiers, and they then became useful. They cooked and brought water and nursed, and at one point at Yorktown, in fact, there's an exchange that Washington has memorialized of saying to some woman who was headed out to the field with bread, aren't you afraid? And she said, well, if the men are out there, I should be out there feeding them. You know, so they were very much on the scene. And and in Washington's general orders, he's constantly saying, because he, he cares about appearances, and he's constantly saying in his general orders, I want the women and children to march with the baggage trains. But he says it so often that uh, you can tell that it's not happening. And then at one point, he finally says, okay, just the women who can move fast should move with the elite corps. So they were in there. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, wasn't Molly Pitcher? Yes, she was at Monmouth in, in New Jersey. We're not sure exactly who she was. There's so much contemporaneous storytelling about her where she was filling the cannons with water, and which was the pitcher. And the man, was the husband, boyfriend, whatever, was shot, and she took yeah, over. There's, I think there's a very famous painting of her wielding uh, the device that you shove down the cannon to, the cannon. to, to fill it. Uh-huh. And, of course, back in that period, because of the kind of cannon they were using, they needed to put the water in to make sure that there's no fire left from the last round. When they put the powder in, it could blow up before you wanted it to. Keeping the powder That's dry. Right. And so she actually, <laughs> uh, at least by mythology, she played it. You know, she was one of those heroic figures. And that sort of helped build the morale and the sense of potential victory. Right. When you add up all of these stories, you really see what an incredible contribution these women make. And let's not leave out the fundraising in 1780. It was a low, low point in the war. The French hadn't arrived yet. The British had New York and Charleston. And soldiers were feeling very defeated Esther DeBert Reed, who was an English immigrant who became a rabid patriot, was the wife of Joseph Reed, who was the governor of Pennsylvania and one of Washington's right-hand men. And she published in the newspapers the sentiments of an American woman calling on women to sacrifice for the men in the 
Army and then started a fundraising drive, and they kept wonderful records. They went, you know, house to house around Philadelphia mainly, but also in the other colonies. The first ladies in each colony ran the drive, and in fact, it's the only extant letter of Martha Jefferson's that we have is of her asking the women of Virginia to contribute to the fund for the soldiers. In a few weeks, they raised $300,000. And at that point, Robert Morris and his cronies were trying to start a bank, and they had only raised $360,000. So the women did something quite remarkable, and it contributed mightily to soldier morale. Uh, There are lots and lots of newspaper articles attesting to that. So there were just all kinds of ways that they made their abilities available to this new nation. Let me um, take these last couple of minutes and switch gears pretty dramatically on you. You've had a <laughs> remarkable career. You grew up with remarkable parents. Both your father and your mother had remarkable careers. And you have carved out a niche for yourself as a journalist, as a historian, and as somebody who is an observer of our time and an interpreter of the past. If a young man or woman came to you and said, what's your advice, given all the things you've been through, all the things you've done, what advice would you give to a young person today that you've learned that you think would help them on the path they're on? I would say, and I'm not just saying this because I'm talking to you, I would say find a way to contribute to the public, preferably through public service. I am a great admirer of people who put themselves on the line. The famous Roosevelt man in the arena, and now thankfully women in the arena. I know how hard public service is, and I greatly admire the people who are willing to do it. I think that that is the way the nation thrives and grows and comes to understand our changes as an American society is by young people taking on that obligation and being willing to fulfill it. And I know it's tough. I really do. And I've always felt guilty about not doing it myself. I'm the only member of my original nuclear family not to run for Congress. But I've tried to contribute by explaining American government. But I do think that We need the participation of the citizenry in any way that they feel that they can do it. And I would advise any young person to, whatever else they do, to also be very participatory citizens. You know, citizenship comes in many ways. I would argue that as a journalist who has really tried to understand, of course, you came from a unique insight. I mean, very few journalists had quite the background of their childhood that you had. But I've always felt like you... We're really trying to understand and explain this process of self-government that on the one hand is very robust and on the other hand is very, very fragile. In that sense, I guess I'd echo what you said, except I would say that citizenship can come in many forms and that if you figure out your particular path for citizenship, you can do an amazing amount for America and do it in a way which is interesting and fascinating and leads to a good life. I couldn't agree more. Let me wish you a very happy Mother's Day. Thank you. I'm happy to say that I now have middle-aged children and 16-age grandchildren and looking forward to a day with them. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you.
Thank you to my guest, Koki Roberts. You can read more about the founding mothers we talked about today, including a link to Koki's book, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvi. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, we'll explore the United States' relationship with communist China and how we got it all wrong. Now there's new China, and the Chinese people have stood up. And Xi Jinping calls it the China dream, and this is something that applies to everything. You know, there's a China dream to build a powerful military. There's a China dream to go to space. There's superpower aspirations. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio Music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.